everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me in studio today. Uh, he will be back with me tomorrow when we will review the USA's friendly against Uruguay, and we hope for a better result than we got Friday night against Mexico. Speaking of that, I have Sam Stashko with me of The Athletic. Uh, Sam is going to be helping me make a little bit more sense of the USA's 3-0 loss to Mexico. Uh, we talk a little bit about what Sam's expectations were heading into the game and sort of what he thinks went wrong and why it went wrong, but then there's larger conversations about Greg Berhalter and how he kind of approaches dealing with media, dealing with the players, dealing with changing of changing his approach. We talk about the uh, game against Uruguay, which will happen Tuesday night, obviously. Uh, six U.S. players sent home, so how maybe the roster will look and what that lineup might look like. And we close it out by talking a little bit of the collective bargaining agreement. Sam wrote a great piece about that for The Athletic, sort of looking back at the negotiations in 2015 and all of the kind of craziness that went on there, and then looking ahead to the upcoming negotiations, how things might be different, how they might not be different, and what just the overall future may hold. So lots of great topics in there. Sam, as always, is a great guest with, uh, I should say, like different thoughts to my own, but the type of differences that like I appreciate because they expose me to new ways of thinking or new ways of understanding. And I mean that sincerely. Sam is great for that type of conversation. So I very much enjoyed this one. Hopefully you will as well. And with all that said, I will stop talking. With me now, making his return to the Total Soccer Show, is Mr. Sam Stayskull of The Athletic. Sam, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited to, for you to help me make sense of uh, the game Friday night, as well as the kind of fallout from that game. Uh, I don't know if you were there or how, like, how much attention you were paying to it. I'm assuming a decent amount, but I'm wondering for you, heading into that Mexico-friendly, kind of what were your expectations? How were you feeling heading into it? And then obviously, how are you feeling at the end of it? Sure. So expectations heading into it were... I mean, I don't want to say I was predicting that it would be that bad, but I wasn't expecting the U.S. to win, um, certainly. I was expecting Mexico to win. They have better players, better team, better roster. Um, they're certainly more in sync, I think, than the U.S. The, than the US are right now um, with what they want to do stylistically. Um, so I was expecting the U.S. to lose the game. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be quite that bad. I thought it would be more competitive than it was. Um, but, you know, Greg Berhalter is pretty clearly committed to this style, um, over results in friendlies, um, which I think, you know, you can argue that that's fine. Um, I personally don't really get it, but we can, we can get into that a little bit more later. So, um, and then after the match, I mean, it was pretty comprehensive loss, you know, the U S couldn't do anything. Uh, Mexico were pretty overwhelming and I thought kind of the talent, um, gap as well as kind of the, the, like I mentioned earlier, the, the comfort in the respective systems, um, all of it was, was very apparent. Were there any players uh, for the U.S. specifically? I'm sure there's a lot of Mexican players that stood out to you, but any U.S. players that were in any way positive, or was it mostly pretty much comprehensively negative? Um, oh man, um, trying to think back to Friday night. I don't really remember anyone being like, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, that person's having a great game." You know what I mean? Um, it wasn't that people were playing poorly necessarily on, on an individual level, although I thought certain guys weren't great, but. Um, it was more just a systemic thing for me. You know, they were asked to do things that they're not great at doing um, against an opponent that was expecting um, those tactics and, and countered them effectively with a super high press. So when you're asking Zach Steffen and Aaron Long and Walker Zimmerman to be really, really comfortable um, playing passes um, in their own 18-yard box and receiving and turning the ball and playing out of pressure when, when they're being swarmed um, by effective pressing players – um, of course they're not going to do well. And is that on the guy or is that on the coach? 
um, for putting them in that position. So, I mean, I didn't really, I don't really blame the players necessarily um, for, for having to do things and that are outside of their skill set and, and playing poorly. Um, but, you know, no one really covered themselves in glory. I'll put it like that. I, would, I mean, Pulisic, I thought was, was pretty solid um, for the most part. You know, he was pretty much the only attacking outlet it felt like, um, you know, at least for the first 60, 70 minutes, it was basically if, if the U.S. was going to go forward, it was going to be on a long solo run against four defenders through, through Christian. So I thought he did okay. Um, but yeah, for the most part, <laughs> pretty negative on the whole. So this might be like hyperbolic rhetoric. I don't mean for it to be, but like I'm kind of with you that it did feel like, and this is something that Daryl and I talked about at length in our review show, that it felt like the players, not all, but generally speaking, were not able to kind of handle what was being asked of them. And I think that was compounded by Mexico essentially just completely setting up to deal with the United States, trying to play out of, or like play out of the back, play possession-based soccer. And so to what you were saying earlier, like, do you think it's the case that the United States, like the players, at least in this roster or the ones that were available for selection uh, before a couple were sent home, do you think it is the case that maybe we've just learned that they're not at the level where they can play that way at like international level? Or is there a chance that we do kind of need to see it grow under Burhalter and get a few more games? Well, I think it sort of depends on what you're looking for, right? And I don't know if you can hear the sirens behind me, so I apologize. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so if, it depends on what on what Berhalter's looking for. So if he wants to play out of the back, dominate the ball, um, and then get eventually get into the midfield um, and have some passing patterns in there and play good attacking soccer, um, then I don't think the U.S. is ever going to be able to do that. Or not, I shouldn't say ever, but not with these players against the better teams in the world. You know, the teams that you would be going up against um, in a World Cup or particularly in a World Cup knockout round, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you're just looking at these friendlies as kind of a learning experience and saying, okay, you know, like we're going to try and play that way in this one. And then situationally, when we're playing against, you know, a Belgium and the round of 16 in Brazil, we can have our guys play out of the back when we need to, even if we know we're not going to be able to dominate the ball against a team like that throughout the course of the 90 minutes. Um, then okay. But I mean, I just don't get it. Like, I mean, my, my whole thing is these players right now, they're probably not going to grow into a team by 2022 that can play this way against even pretty good national teams like Mexico. Um, so I'm of the belief that you should play to their skill sets, play to their strengths, um, go out, um, you know, maybe sit a little more compact defensively, um, try and hit teams on the counter, um, and, and, you know, kind of play that old school U.S. style that, that works pretty well, at least on the field in terms of results, uh, for a good period of time. Um, so I, I think that's what they should be going for. Um, having said that, I don't think you have to – let me let me figure out how to phrase this. You can still play possession soccer and have good intricate attacking patterns without playing the ball in your own box all the time. You know, you don't have to build from the goalkeeper and the center backs um, with short intricate passing games um, to play good attacking soccer. You know, you can you can play long and then get the ball up there and then play good attacking soccer, right? And have some possession and knock the ball around a little bit. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, and I think we kind of confuse that a lot of the time. Um, so I just wanted to say that part too, but for me, I mean, I don't, I just don't see the stylistic fit. I think it's cool to try it. Um, but I just don't think the player pool fits it right now. So from your 
experience and understanding of Greg Berhalter, like both with the national team and then at, at club level as well, is he the type to adjust or completely change course if it seems like the tactics aren't working? Or do you expect him to kind of persist in the possession, build out of the back style in hopes that it does eventually catch on? Or do we think you think we do see a little bit of, in terms of the change of approach? Um, I expect him to persist at least for a while. Um, will he persist through 2022? Um, I don't think so. I think he'll eventually turn a little bit more pragmatic. Um, in Columbus, he had a pretty rigid system. He did tweak it here and there um, over the course of his, what, four or five years with the team. Um, but for the most part, you know, four two three one, um, similar shape, similar patterns, and, and pretty intricate setup that a lot of people in MLS, myself included, liked watching. Um, now, sometimes they would play through Stefan and build through the back that way. Sometimes he would have Stefan go long. He would tweak that. Um, but it's a lot easier to do that on the club level than it is on the international level, mm-hmm. right? Um, you just get, you get these guys in training every single day. You have a full month-long preseason with them. Um, with the national team, you might never have your best 11 in at the same time um, due to injuries and, and what have you, availability. Um, so it's just it's hard to implement a system like that on the international level. Um, and so we'll see. I, I eventually expect him to, to shift a little bit more pragmatic simply because I don't think um, the system is going to work well. And I think Greg will eventually realize um, that, you know, he's going to need to shift and he's going to want to get results um, in games that matter. Um, and so I think I think he'll see that eventually and I think he'll make the change. Every now and then we have these moments or I have these moments where like someone will say something that is like on the surface obvious but not a thing I have ever been able to like articulate clearly and you've just done it there with the idea that like the national with the national teams you rarely have your best 11 there's always something that goes wrong there's always somebody injured and I've never really realized that that was completely true but it's absolutely true and it's a very good point that you're right like if you're hinging it all on like this player needs to be there then there's a decent chance that at some point that player is not going to be there so that is a very good point as to why like it can be difficult with the national team so thank you for that Sam Uh, your wisdom is always appreciated (laughs) You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and I wanted to stick with Berhalter for another for a moment longer then because I have not been in a press conference with him that I can recall. I'm assuming you have and maybe you've had some time to chat with him over the course of your illustrious career. Is he – like what is his usual disposition specifically in post-match press conferences? Because from what I saw of the one on Friday, he seemed a bit more defensive. He seemed a little surprised by the way it was – like the questions he was getting. I saw some of those comments in there about like, oh, I see the way this is going and like I thought it was good but I know you all aren't going to spin that narrative or whatever and he seemed very frustrated by the press in a way that I kind of wasn't expecting yeah I thought that was kind of interesting too and and I don't have a ton of experience with Greg in post-game press conferences I have more experience with him um in pre-match post-training sessions one-on-ones that sort of thing mm-hmm. um from what I've seen from him in press conferences I mean I'm not going to judge him too harsh that can be an emotional time for coaches and players and media members for that matter um, it was a little bit surprising. The one thing I would say is that, you know, dealing with the media for the U S national team is a whole lot different than dealing with the media at Columbus crew. Um, and that's no knock on anybody or any press corps or anything like that. Um, it's just the, the coverage is a lot more critical and a lot more intense when you're with the national team than when you're in Columbus. So I'm, I'm guessing there's probably a little bit of an adjustment there going on with Greg. Um, I'm sure he wasn't pleased after the game, you know, losing three, nothing, especially in that fashion, that's not fun for anybody. Um, but for the most part, in terms of Greg's interactions with the media that I've had with him or, or that I've seen or, or talked to people about, you know, he's a very thoughtful guy. Um, one thing that kind of always stood out to me 
when I would cover him, um, you know, drive down to Columbus or see him at the MLS Combine or wherever um, before he took over the national team, is that, you know, everyone has their recorders out during the scrum, um, and then the scrum ends, and he would just kind of hang out for five, ten minutes and just kind of chat, um, whether it's about soccer or whether it's about someone's opinion. And, and you can actually have a discussion with him um, to the point where, you know, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll be curious and he'll sort of ask a writer's opinion on, on things, which is a pretty rare quality for a coach to have. Um, so I've always, I've always experienced him as a pretty thoughtful, pretty open guy. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's changed a little bit. Um, although I don't think it has in, in, in balance, but if that changes a little bit in post-game press conferences, particularly when um, you're losing 3 nothing and you're kind of under the microscope a little bit as a national team head coach. Does he run like deflection at all? Like the way I think of like Arsene Wenger would always talk about like kind of headline making points as a way to distract from like when his team didn't perform well. And it did feel a little bit like that uh, in that press conference where he said he was like happier with this result than the Gold Cup final. To me, that felt like a thing that a coach would say if they were trying to kind of keep the pressure off the players, keep focus away from what had actually happened, but more so on like, can you believe he said that? And I can't tell if that's a thing that he does or if just in the moment he genuinely felt like this was a better result um i mean i think every coach does that first of all so um you know like i think i think he's done that before i'm sure he'll do it again whether or not this was the case of that um you know i wouldn't be surprised if he genuinely believes it in terms of i mean obviously the result was worse right three zero is worse than one zero right And, and the u.s was far more in the gold cup final than they were in this game um, but in terms of his process and in terms of his system, right, they stayed more committed to it in this game, right? I don't think there's really any arguing that. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, I, I would I would buy that he was happier from that, right? Um, and then it just sort of comes down to okay, what's your what's your priorities, right? Do you want is that more important to you than mm-hmm. than being competitive and having a chance to get a result? Um, I would say from the perspective of the U.S. fan base, um, no, right. Uh, but from the perspective of what he's trying to build, I, I guess it is. Uh, I disagree with that. I think, I think it's misguided to kind of play that way with a player pool. Um, maybe I turn out fabulously wrong. I think Greg Berhalter is certainly making that bet. I understand what he's doing. Um, I just don't think I would be doing it if I was a coach. Hello, podcast friends. This is Taylor jumping in for one second. Much more still to come from Mr. Sam Stasko. Uh, but first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at SeatGeek. Other ticketing websites can make it a little bit difficult to find tickets to an event. It almost feels like they're sometimes doing it on purpose because maybe they don't necessarily care about the customer experience and whether or not you're getting the best value as long as you're just buying the ticket. Uh, but with millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves that there is a better way. So you can search for sports, live music, comedy, much, much more. You can search theater. If maybe the United States has uh, made you slightly depressed and you don't want to deal with uh, American soccer anymore, you can just, you know, go distract yourself with, 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 uh, with theater and a nice like Broadway performance, and then maybe you feel a little bit better. That seems a little bit more like choreographed and rehearsed and practiced, and then maybe you can go back and see how the United States compares as a result. My guess would be not quite as smoothly. But speaking of things that are smooth, a quick look at the App Store shows over 50,000 five-star reviews, uh, which indicates SeatGeek has a decent return on the customer satisfaction. And best of all, SeatGeek will even give you $10 off your first purchase. Uh, All you need to do is use our promo code, download the SeatGeek app today, and use the code TSS for $10 off your first purchase. One more time, if you download that app, use the promo code TSS and get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Uh, We had a few different people tweet at us that they used that code to get 
get tickets to the USA-Mexico game. And while we very much appreciate that, we also apologize for the people who then had to suffer through it, unless they were El Tree fans, in which case you're welcome, and we assume it was a good time. Uh, but once again, uh, SeatGeek app, use the code TSS for $10 off. Thank you very much to SeatGeek for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Now back to my chat with Sam. One question there, like, if I was trying to look for silver linings, which I did spend a decent chunk of my weekend doing, uh, like, the guys over at the Scuffed podcast were arguing that essentially Mexico banked on the U.S. really doubling down on trying to build out of the back, and their entire game plan was essentially set up to focus on the U.S. building out of the back and then putting that high pressure on to make them uncomfortable to force those turnovers, and eventually they score some goals. And so... Like, maybe this is completely naive and stupid, but this is the only thing I could kind of hope for is that, like, against a team that was deliberately set up to kind of, like, focus on the faults in that system, the United States looked bad. But I guess I feel like there's a chance that against a team that isn't high-pressing or is sitting off a little bit more, they don't look as inept as they did when trying to build out of the back against Mexico. And I guess I'm just kind of raising that as an idea and wondering what your thoughts on that might be. Um, I have a few different thoughts on that. So uh, I would like I think, to hear all of them. I think I think you're right, first of all, right? If a team isn't set up to press, then the U.S. will do better, right? I think that's fair to say. I would counter that assertion with another question. Why would any U.S. national team opponent not press? A valid um, point. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, they all they all have the tape of this game and other games yeah. that, that the team has played. Why would they Why would they not press? Um, so, you know what I mean? Like, like they're good teams that are that are capable of pulling it off or that have watched any sort of film are going to press. So this is something that the U.S. is going to have to deal with. Um, second of all, um, you know, I think and this is a much broader point, um, but I don't think we really need to look for silver linings. You know, I think the U.S. national team is in a bad way right now. And I think it's OK to talk about that. And I, in fact, I think it's necessary to talk about mm-hmm. um, to sort of realistically put this in the proper perspective of where this is and where it's going um, and where it needs to go and the kind of work that needs to be done. Um, you know, the player pool isn't good. I, I think we're going to see a lineup against Uruguay tomorrow night. That's, um, you know, with, with the five players um, departing, going back to Europe and in the case of Sean Johnson, going back to NYC. Um that's going to be kind of like, I don't want to say January camp-esque, mm-hmm. but I don't think it'll be too far off from that. No, it will not. Um, in terms of the overall level of quality, right? So, I, you know, I, I think it's okay to talk about that the program's in a bad way right now and that there's a lot of work to be done. Um, that's not ex- an excuse for Burhalter, um, but it, I think it is the reality right now, and I don't think we should sugarcoat it. You know, it, it yeah. seems like every time, <laughs> I, it seems like every time, you know, we have a Josh Sargent or a Serginio Dest. It's like they're our new best player just simply because most people have never seen that player play before. You know what I mean? And like that, it like drives me wild. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm overreacting to this and please disagree with me if you want to, but I, I just don't think the pool is in a good place right now. And I think if anything, um, us national team fans and, and most of the coverage out there, is too optimistic about it. That, that, no, that's that's useful to hear, and like I don't really disagree with anything you said. I think on the show we tend to try to like as best we can see whatever sides we can uh, when it relates to yeah. the coverage and how the game is. And so, I'm like, not what taking, I'm not taking that to you. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. I know it's more so. It's more so. I'm, I'm really glad you actually like you raised that point about we don't really need silver linings because you're you're right. It's just when I hear Greg Berhalter articulate like, no, this like we're doing what we want to be doing. 
building and it was better than it looked and like we executed our game plan and if we keep building and I guess there's a part of me that's like I don't believe you but then there's a part of me that's also like but maybe he's right and maybe maybe I'm being reactionary yeah, no, and, and, and so that's where I maybe he will maybe he will turn out right yeah um but you know I don't necessarily see it going that way I think in order for this team to be competitive he's going to have to be more pragmatic with the style that they're playing um and if I turn out wrong and the U.S. national team is a team that's able to play from goalkeeper to center back all the way on up um, with intricate passing patterns and, and make things look pretty um, and succeed, then I will happily be wrong. Um, that would be that would be a cool thing for American soccer. Can I, um, I, can just I add don't a, see it happening? Yeah, can I add the guy the right there, like against an opponent that isn't St. Kitts and Nevis or something like that? Like it has yeah. to be against a slightly stronger opponent. Then uh, if they do yeah. that, then yes, I'll be impressed. Against uh, you know like a smaller tier Caribbean nation, maybe less less excited about that style of play. But speaking of things that aren't that exciting, as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. sent number of players home. There's only 20 players on the roster for the game against Uruguay. Uh, John Brooks, Sean Johnson, Weston McKinney, Alfredo. Morales, Christian Pulisic, and Zach Steffen all no longer with the team. They were released Saturday morning. So with those players all gone, who or what would you like to see against Uruguay? Are there individual players you want to get more of? Is there a tactic or approach or like overall tactical game plan you'd like to see? All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this assuming that they're going to stick with the same style that we mm. saw against Mexico and, and try and build out the back and, and keep the ball and all that stuff. Um, so taking that as a given, I, w- I would just like to see it be a little bit cleaner, a little more composed, um, you know, have those center backs be more comfortable on the ball. Um, and if it's not working, I would like to see some adjustments, you know, you can still, like I've been saying, you can still play good attacking soccer and bypass the back line if you want to, you know what I mean? You don't have to play everything short from the goalkeeper on up. Um, so you can start like that, but if it's not working, I would say go ahead and okay, let's let's try and get the ball further forward. Um, you know, it's a lot more important in my opinion to work on the possession and the patterns farther up on the field mm-hmm. than it is kind of in your own 18-yard box or your own defensive third. Um, so if you're if you're going to see the friendlies as kind of a you know training exercise in certain ways, then I would rather have them get their practice farther up the field personally um, <laughs> than in their own 18-yard box. But that's just me. Um, so I would like to see that adjustment if it's not working, um, in terms of individual guys, you know, I'm sure we're going to probably see some, some of the faces that we didn't see on Friday night, um, get out there and get some run. And of course, you know, the younger guys, Paxton Pomacall, Jackson Ewell, um, guys like that, it'd be cool to see them, uh, go from the beginning potentially, um, Josh Sargent, I would certainly include in that group and, and kind of see what they can do against, um, a really, really good opponent, by the way, in Uruguay. So it's going to be tough sledding, but, um, you know, a little more composure, adjustments if it's not working, um, and, you know, maybe maybe a little bit more intensity too. You know, I, and that's a vague concept, and I'm not saying they didn't play hard the other night, but, um, you know, somebody I'll, gets I'll stuck in. It. I'll say it. <laughs> like, like, I, I mean, we, t- we talked about it a little right. bit. If you get nutmegged, you know, right before, and a guy's dribbling past you into the box, you know, maybe maybe drop a shoulder into him instead of walk back. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we, we, we made the argument on the show that, like, the only time the United States seemed to match the intensity of Mexico in, like, 
challenging for 50-50 balls, challenging for loose balls, playing in direct balls, really fighting for them, was the sequence that led to the penalty. Aside from that, I felt like they lost almost every sing- single loose ball and really, really failed to compete for them. So, like, it's definitely, it definitely wasn't a level of, like, oh, they just didn't care or, like, they took the night off or anything like that. But it definitely felt like Mexico had all the momentum and put themselves in a position to outwork the United States from minute one. So I would absolutely like to see a bit more intensity from the United States. And I would absolutely, to your point, like to see them try to establish and then maintain possession further up the field because there have been many gifts. Uh, there's a few during the rounds today uh, that showcase the United States against Mexico, like taking a throw in in Mexico's defensive third, and then slowly the ball gets worked all the way back to Zach Steffen. And I can't really figure out if that is Mexico doing something particularly effective or if it's the United States kind of lacking midfielders who are able to hold onto the ball and make plays. And with that in mind, I guess my like larger question then is like, are there midfielders either let's start with like currently on the roster now like is is that something you think Jackson Ewell can do can he help establish more attacking possession further up the field and kind of find line splitting balls and make bigger plays or right now are we sort of bereft of talent when it comes to the 20 remaining players I mean like maybe like I'm not gonna write him off completely but like you know and I'm not saying Jackson Ewell is a bad player because he's not you know what I mean like he's a good player but is he the level of midfielder that's going to be able to do that on an, on the international level against a team like Uruguay? Like probably not, you know? And I think that's fair to say right now. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he'll grow into something more. He's still a young guy. Um, and, and like I said, I'm not trying to say he's a bad player. He's not, but just in the broader context of things, like he's going against Lucas Torreira, who, you know, isn't, is in a fight for playing time at Arsenal, right? He's going against Betancourt if he's playing against Uruguay, right? Like these are like, these are players on, on big time teams who have played in huge, huge games. Is he going to be able to go out there and go toe to toe with those guys? Like maybe, maybe he'll surprise me. Maybe he'll impress us in, in that way. Um, but I would say the, the money, the smart money would be on probably not. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to knock the kid. Like it, it's just kind of a, a more of a statement on the player pool in general. Like we just don't have a lot of those types of players right now. And, uh, I think that's something that just needs to be repeated over and over again as we continue to get our hopes up about guys that, you know, in my opinion anyway, um, aren't really at that level. So then much bigger, broader question here. So do with it what you will. But like, how do you think we repair that? How do you think we do get that player pool? Like, not like at the point where it's competing with Uruguay, because that's obviously a massive, massive, massive step up. But in terms of like having more consistent players on the ball who you feel like are more technically sound, what does the United States need to be doing? Does it need more players going abroad? Does it need more players getting time with Major League Soccer teams? Do we need ProRail, Sam? What's the solution? Um, well, I think we do need pro rail, but that's not really <laughs> to this question. Let's get into it right now. I mean, Let's do a whole pro rail show. That's, that's the that's the billion dollar question, right? Like, and mm-hmm. and the there's no short answer. We need a million different things. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's really hard. I think it starts with culture, coaching, personally, and culture. And coaching, you can make better, right? Um, you can educate coaches better. You can hopefully get more coaches, incentivize more people to coach um, and kind of raise the level there. Um, culture is harder to fix. And and that's something that is not down to anyone in soccer. That's just, that's just the broader American ecosystem, right? Um, when you have kids, you know, that are sleeping with a basketball and dribbling it everywhere they go, or when you have kids in Uruguay who are constantly playing soccer in different settings, right? Not just in a structured training, 
but out there on the street as well, where they're just getting all sorts of touches and trying to dribble past guys and, and defending and developing one v one skills on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, that's, that's how these things get better, right? It's, it's coaching and culture in my opinion, and there's no short path to either of those. <laughs> there might not be any path to the culture to, to get it to the level of, of a lot of these countries around the world. In fact, there probably isn't, um, but it can get a little more important. It can get a little better. So, you know, it's, there are a million different things in terms of how you want to structure things in terms of how you want to structure the youth system in terms of what MLS should do. Um, and on and on and on, we could talk about that for days. Um, but to me, it goes back to those two things, um, most of all, and, and we'll see, we'll see if we're able to do it. All right. So the abbreviated answer there, listeners at home, is Sam is advising you to sneak into children's homes at night and leave soccer balls in their beds. That's the solution that I'm hearing? <laughs> um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, more, one more question about the Uruguay game, uh, and then I wanted to ask you a little bit about the CBA. Uh, but with Uruguay, Saberhalter does play a more compact defensive style. We do, like, maybe, maybe it finishes one-to-one, Uruguay find a way through, but we sit back, we defend, we're very physical, and we have have like some good counterattacking plays end up getting a goal on the counter. Does that make you feel better about things that we see Burhalter adapt his style and then the United States can execute using a completely different system? Or does that feel like, oh no, we've just completely gone back to what we've been doing and this is sort of Burhalter retreating from the kind of principles that got him hired in the first place? I mean, I would be fine with that because I'm of the belief that especially with national teams, you need to play to the strengths through pool. You know, this isn't a situation where Berhalter can go out and sign a guy or 10 guys and change the characteristics of his team. He has what he has for the most part. And he talks about development, you know, and that's something that came up in his press conference and one of the answers. And it's really hard to develop guys in a national team setting. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can change their mindset a little bit, but if they're going to go back to the clubs and play a different way, right? Like the Red Bulls aren't asking Aaron Long to build out of the back like Berhalter was the other night, Right. So you can try and change his mindset a little bit, but when he goes back to New York, he's going to not play that way. And so is he going to be able to develop like that? I don't know. Um, and so I'm of the opinion, national team, you play your strengths, you go with what you got. Um, it's not Greg's job to implement a style, in my opinion. Um, that's the job. It's not his job to make better players either. That's the job of clubs. That's the job of the youth system. Um, his job, in my opinion, um, is to win games. And maybe I'm too pragmatic about this, um, but that's sort of how I see it. And, and that's not Greg. That's any national team coach in any country in the world. And I think we kind of need to start approaching it like that. It's noble to go out and try and play pretty soccer, but sometimes your players don't allow you to do that. And that's fine. There's, there's nobility in playing hard-nosed, scrappy soccer, too, um, and, and winning some games. So, you know, I think, I think he needs to be a little bit more pragmatic. So if they go out and get a 1-1 and they fight really hard and steal something on the counter, I would be personally fine with that. Um, you know, if they go out again and lose three, four, nothing, and they don't adjust, that's what, that's what would make me um, upset. You know, they can go out and try again. I'm fine with that. But if it's not working for the first 45, go into halftime and maybe change tack a little. It, does, it doesn't really work in an audio format, but I should just tell listeners that when I'm being quiet when Sam's talking, I'm usually just nodding. So that was me just agreeing with everything with Sam said. So I agree with all of that. <laughs> um, the final thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, for a little bit is the collective bargaining agreement. You wrote a, a great piece about this for The Athletic. Um, but before we get to the kind of upcoming negotiations, I wanted to ask if you could give us a quick history of what happened at the last negotiations in 2015, because I thought that was fascinating and also kind of a bummer. 
Sure. So basically the long and short of it is that the players left money on the table, right? Which anyone who knows what TAM is and what it's about and knows when it was implemented, which was just a few months after the CBA was agreed to, um, understands. So that's no secret, right? Um, you know, the salary cap went up very marginally um, to the point where a lot of people at different clubs around the league, presidents, GMs, coaches, et cetera, were like, oh, crap we budgeted more than this with our salaries and now we need to figure out a way to get our cap back down because we're not going to fit in it. Um, and then Tan came into play, uh, I think that July. Um, so four months after the CBA was agreed to. And, you know, that just sort of showed that the owners did in fact want to spend more money than they gave to the players. Um, obviously it was structured different than it would have been had it just been in the salary cap. Um, so that's kind of the recap of the last one. You know, the, the players did vote to strike. Um, I believe it was 18 to one from what I was told um, initially. And then a mediator came in and kind of talked them down a little bit and, and they switched and they voted to accept the deal. So, um, and I think that's kind of indicative of where we might be headed again. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's just hard. The players don't make a ton of money. Even still, there's, there's more money in the league now. Um, but if there's, I think it's about a quarter of the league is making 75 or less and not to say that's insignificant, but you know, um, making 75 or less, how many paychecks can you really afford to miss? And if you are a dad and you have two kids at home and you have a house payment and you're making 200, how many paychecks can you really afford to miss? Um, so I think that's kind of the situation that the players are going to find themselves in where it's just, you know, these guys aren't going to have a huge strike fund. And that's going to lower their leverage. And so how much are they going to really be able to take power from the owners? Um, and the people I talk to, um, who I tend to agree with on this, just kind of think it's going to be hard for them to switch that balance of power. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. So, but then it also sounds like the uh, upcoming iteration will be like not just player versus owner, but maybe there's a chance it's a little bit owner versus owner as well. Yeah, I think a little bit. Um, you know, I think for the most part, they're going to be relatively aligned on what they want to spend on the salary cap. Um, you know, uh, one source made the made the point to me that that uh, you know most of these owners came into the league with the expectation that expenses were going to be reasonable and that they would be able to compete. Um, and I think they'll try and keep it that way through the salary cap. Where you're going to see the difference, I think, is on discretionary things. So if they keep TAM, right? How much TAM are they going to have? Um, are they going to allow more DPs? Um, of course, the charter flight discussion. Um, so things like that, where you're spending over the top of the salary cap, how much of that are teams like LAFC and Atlanta and Toronto? How much of that are they going to be able to push for? And then how much um, is the other group, the more conservative faction, Dallas, right, New England, potentially, uh, Houston, et cetera? How much are they going to be able to kind of control spending and keep a cap on it? So if the ga- like if for example the Galaxy proposed we want there to be five DP slots, you can have up to five. There can be whatever clauses in there, however you want to do it. How do you think that gets perceived by the other owners? Is that an easy thing to pass, or do you think it meets with a lot of hesitation from the owners who did kind of have the expectation that it would be a little bit more reasonable to operate a team in the league? Yeah, that would meet with a ton of hesitation. Really? Um, just because? Yeah, I mean. MLS is built on parity, right? And if you add two more DPs and the Galaxy can go out and spend $20 million on a couple more of them, then it's, that parity is going to decrease, right? So I think that would be met with a ton of hesitation for that reason. 
And so in the end, do you think this one goes a little bit more smoothly just because the players kind of know how things stand, even though they left money on the table? It still is the case. And I agree with you completely. Like Bill Simmons made that argument kind of consistently about when the NBA went on strike. And the biggest thing the owners learned there was like, yeah, these guys are kind of paycheck to paycheck. And eventually they kind of have to come to the table because they need their salary. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that to me that then feels like the players are sort of going to go for more manageable or like or like. Uh, like targets that are a little bit more manageable or reachable than they will hold out for some kind of massive deal. Um, you know, I I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't. I mean, I don't think they're going to have the ability to hold out for a massive mm-hmm. deal. Um, so I think I think that'll dictate more than anything. Um, I would say I would be surprised if they miss games, but you know, we'll see. Like I am saying all this, they probably do have a bigger strike fund. Um, than they did last time, but there are a lot of disparate types of players in the league too. So it's going to be hard to figure out what they want to strike over if they want to strike over something. There we are. Well, if people want to hear more about the more about the strike potential strike or just the uh, collective bargaining agreement as it evolves, then they can uh, do so by uh, reading Sam's work over the Athletic. Sam, are you is that what you're primarily focused on, or are you kind of all over the place right now? All over the place. There we sure. go. But I'll have a lot of stuff on the CBA. All right, and if, if people want to find you elsewhere, how can they do so? Yeah, just on Twitter at my name, so Sam Stasekel, S-T-E-J-S-K-A-L. <laughs> Easy enough. All right, well, Sam, I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. I know you got a busy schedule, but uh, I, I appreciate you helping me make sense. USA-Mexico, USA-Uruguay, and the CBA. It's all very much appreciated. I appreciate you having me on, and hopefully I didn't muddle things further. <laughs> <laughs> you did not. I feel, I feel slightly better, even if I feel slightly better about feeling slightly worse. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, thanks again for having me on. 